the first real profound experience I had was just this sense of being somewhere where I just felt really connected to everything. Just in a place that kind of it almost transcended human language, you know, it was it was somewhere else. It was somewhere I'd never been before. It was beautiful. I remember thinking, you know, depression and anxiety, it doesn't exist here. If you image the brain of depressed people three weeks after they've had their second trip, you can see their brains work differently. They're more flexible. And the less modular, the more flexible the brain is, the better the outcome. The field of psychedelics is probably one of the most exciting areas of mental health drug research right now. Psychedelic drugs, many of which have been used for a long time recreationally, are a class of compounds that can stimulate changes in the brain, leading to altered thoughts and sensory perceptions, and at higher doses, even hallucinations. In the UK, there are a number of ongoing clinical trials investigating the use of psychedelic drugs paired with therapy in the treatment of serious mental health conditions, such as depression, anorexia, and post-traumatic stress disorder. In other parts of the world, they're about to go even further. In the US, the FDA could approve MDMA for PTSD this year, and in just a couple of months, authorised psychiatrists in Australia will be able to prescribe MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. Some are saying psychedelic-assisted therapy could revolutionise psychiatry, but is it that straightforward? We haven't seen the completion of many phase three trials, and there are concerns that any rollout in the UK could be complicated by a lack of trained therapists. Welcome back to the PJ Pod. I'm Julia Robinson, senior data journalist at the Pharmaceutical Journal. And in this episode, I hope to uncover the truth behind the current hype around the use of psychedelic drugs in mental health. Just a warning that this episode contains some potentially upsetting content about suicidal thoughts and miscarriage. Links to support services will be included in the show notes. Hello. Hello, it's Julia from the Pharmaceutical Journal. Earlier this week, I took a trip into central London to a rather anonymous location just off Harley Street to visit Clerkenwell Health the first commercial facility for psychedelic drug trials in Europe. I was there to speak with Sarah Baitup, the therapy lead, to find out how it all works. Hello, I'm Julia from the Pharmaceutical Journal. Pleased to meet you. I'm Sarah, Um, I'm head of therapy at Clerkenwell. So we're here in one of the therapy rooms, aren't we? Um, So it's a very comfortable room, almost sort of like a living room with a couple of comfortable armchairs. Um, And then there's a bed in the corner. So so this is where you would bring the patient for their therapy sessions? Yep, this is one of our our treatment rooms. Um, It's very similar to any therapy room that, you know, people might visit. But we've got um, the bed um, over there, which is for when someone's taken a psychedelic, you know, they'd lie in the bed. In terms of the atmosphere, when a patient comes in, is there music playing? Do you have candles? What sort of, can you describe it to me? What's it like? There are no candles. 
We do have music in some of the trials. In fact, most trials do have music. We just want the room to be very neutral in itself. We don't want there to be any sort of strong symbols of any sort. Um, We just want people to feel very comfortable and very safe and that it's very professional. Talk us through the role of a therapist in a psychedelic clinical trial. Well, the role is multifaceted. So the, the easiest bit to explain is that the therapist is there to deliver a particular therapy model. Some trials would use um, what's called a non-directive model. And that means that the therapist isn't really delivering therapy, but they're there as a support and they're there to be curious and to ask questions. Or the therapist might deliver something like cognitive behaviour therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy. And there, their role is to deliver that therapy with fidelity to the model. So to deliver that model and nothing else. Can you describe a little bit how um, so the effect of a psychedelic medicine? I know, obviously, there are a few different medicines, but say if I, I was uh, involved in one of these trials and I'd taken uh, one of these medicines, how, how might it make me feel and how does that affect the therapy process? Now, it's difficult to answer your question because there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. People's experiences will be very different and we can't tell people what they might experience Some people may experience very little indeed, and other people might have quite an intense experience. So it's very common for people to to have sort of um, what's called an altered state of consciousness or to have altered sensations in their body. So they might experience sensations in their skin, they might see visions, they might hear things, might have a distorted perception of what's around them. And that can be sometimes a very, very positive thing, or it could be a very, very scary thing, or something absolutely in between. So how would you typically start a therapy session after someone's taken a psychedelic drug? Where would you begin? Mm-hmm. So that first session is about talking through the experience. What happened? What did you make of that? How does that make you feel? Um, And in some of the um, evidence-based psychological therapies, we would tie that back to the work that they'd done prior to taking the dose. So the really exciting thing um, for me as a clinician is sometimes you work with somebody and they they get very, very stuck. So let's say somebody that's got post-traumatic stress disorder or treatment-resistant depression, um, and they say, I can't do that. It hurts too much. I'm too anxious, I'm too scared, I haven't got the energy, I just can't do this, it's not within within me to do this. And one of the things that, that happens with psilocybin, for instance, is that very often people experience a total absence of those symptoms. So those beliefs that they had, I can't, I'm not capable, I'm broken, I'm weak, I'm not fixable. Um, or the anxiety, the terror that they were experiencing. It's almost like the psilocybin pulls the plug on those symptoms. And that, as a therapist, is very, very exciting because it means that those things that were blocking or interfering with the person's ability to progress with therapy are temporarily taken away. And that's, that's where you start to see the change happening. And are there any risks, I'm thinking of conditions like PTSD, of potentially re-traumatising them? Hmm. So when we're doing research trials, um, we have what's called an exclusion and an inclusion criteria. 
um, and people are screened and assessed quite rigorously. And one of the reasons that we do that is to make sure that we're not putting a very vulnerable person, we're not making them more vulnerable, because it, it is possible um, that in taking a psychedelic that you might experience intrusive images that were quite unpleasant. There's quite a sort of um, lack of therapists in general. Do you think this is potentially going to limit the introduction of psychedelic medicine? So you're quite right. There aren't enough psychological therapists in the UK or even in the world. And therefore, you know, there aren't enough therapists to deliver um, this type of therapy. Um, it's not on the curriculum uh, in the, you know, the universities. Um, now, we're trying to do something about that. So we're in the early stages of talking um, with an academic institution to establish the first postgraduate qualification in psychedelic-assisted therapies. And it is going to be aimed at any mental health professional, but also open to psychological well-being practitioners um, and um, psychiatric nurses, as well as counsellors and psychologists and other types of therapists. Having spoken to Sarah about the role of the therapist in psychedelic drug trials, I was really keen to hear the perspective of someone on the other side, the side of the patient. What does it feel like to take a psychedelic drug and to go through this experience? And how do they feel it affected their symptoms? Please note the next part has some potentially upsetting content. If you want to avoid this, please feel free to skip this part. Exact times are given in the show notes. So, uh, so my name's Matt, I'm 47. I've probably struggled with depression since I was a teenager. Um, the main themes of my depression have been kind of a lack of self-worth, um, you know, plagued by self-doubt. Um, you know, I've struggled with uh, feelings of kind of social anxiety and that kind of having that sense of belonging. You know, I've struggled with abandonment wounds during my life. So, um, yeah, and uh, they tend to come in kind of patches where I kind of feel quite low for a fairly long period of time. And then I'm, things might be OK for a bit, but it kind of tends to come back. So it's been a little bit like this through most of my life. Matt had already tried therapy and a variety of antidepressants over his life, but nothing had quite got to the crux of the issue, as he phrases it. Encouraged by a friend, he applied to be a participant in a phase two double-blind randomised control trial conducted by researchers at Imperial College London, which aimed to compare the psychedelic psilocybin to escitalopram, an SSRI antidepressant, for the treatment of depression. After a stringent screening process, he was accepted onto the trial in which he received two doses of psilocybin, one in January and one in February, just before we went into the first COVID lockdown. Before the dosing session, as it's called, participants were asked to attend a preparation day. So the prep day involves a little bit of kind of talking about what your kind of symptoms are and just preparing you for what the dosing day might be. The dosing day itself, you know, you just kind of turn up early in the morning and you get given a little bowl of tablets. And uh, I took them and um, just waited for something to happen, really. Obviously, really hoping I was in the high dose psilocybin group um, because I'd gone there for, you know, a real deep dive, a real deep experience. And um, I kind of felt 
I felt a little bit cold um, 20 minutes after taking the tablets. That kind of apparently was a good sign. Um, I got under the covers, I put the headphones on and um, put the eye mask on. You know, you're not exposed to stimuli from the outside world. It's all about going in. Um, that seemed to make a lot of sense to me. I was very comfortable with that. Matt said that once the drug started taking effect, he remembers a number of particular moments during the trip. That the first real, most profound experience I had was just this sense of being, being somewhere, I couldn't really describe where, but just being somewhere where I just felt really connected to everything. You know, just this real sense of a powerful connection with myself, you know, with nature, um, just in a place that kind of it almost transcended human language. You know, it was it was somewhere else. It was somewhere I'd never been before. It was beautiful. I remember thinking, you know, oh my God, you know, depression and anxiety, it doesn't exist here. It doesn't belong here. And I remember really feeling that deeply. Um, and I was just I was just in awe of that, really. Some of what he experienced was linked to past trauma and heartbreak, enabling him to confront emotions that he had previously buried deep down. You know, there were some, there were some really profound moments. Uh, I was in this kind of dark, it was kind of what felt like quite a dark room, and I could see kind of two glowing objects in the distance, and I was walking closer and closer to them. And yeah, they were the two babies we lost when we had our miscarriages. And I remember thinking, I was kind of, wow, that it had managed to kind of unearth that because I hadn't really grieved for those two losses. You know, I thought it was beautiful that the psychedelic experience was able to just kind of bring, bring that to the forefront and just give me a moment to, yeah, to cry, to grieve, to, to kind of say goodbye, you know, to, to those, to those, you know, two lives that could have been. And, and you know, I hadn't, hadn't done that up until that moment. And that, that came as a bit of a surprise, really. I hadn't realised I'd been holding on to a lot of emotion with that. So that was, that, that was powerful um, and beautiful. Matt told me that after the first dose, he had a sense of an afterglow, a real feeling of peace and connection, both with himself and with nature, and a happiness he'd not experienced in a long time. However, the feelings he was left with after the second dose were very different. The second dose felt quite emo much more emotionally overwhelming. It was almost like the inner, the vulnerable inner child within me had kind of come to the surface. And I felt a real strong need to be kind of held and supported. Um, and I kind of wasn't really. And that's the difficult thing about trials, I guess, you know, it's a learning process for them as well. I don't feel that I had the kind of support that I probably needed at the time, you know, from them. You know, I found it really, really difficult to, to part ways with, with my guide. You know, guides within psychedelic experience can quite easily become parental figures. Um, Although I'd had this beautiful afterglow and this contentness and peace after the first dose, after the second dose, because I was so kind of overwhelmed, 
um, I, I struggled a little bit and well, I struggled a lot actually I probably shouldn't downplay it I you know I've never I've never I've never shared this but you know a few days after my second dose you know there was lots of thoughts about taking my own life because because I felt so overwhelmed because I didn't feel held or supported I kind of felt a bit of a failure this again highlights how crucial the therapy element of psychedelic assisted therapy is and how if psychedelics were to be routinely prescribed access to trained therapists is an absolute necessity and while psychedelics do show considerable promise for treatment resistant depression and other mental health conditions they're certainly not a silver bullet for matt his experience on the trial was helpful but it was by no means curative having said that he hasn't been put off i would definitely try it again i'd definitely try it again i i, I believe in the power of psychedelics to heal i just think it you know it needs the right care and attention and the right support and you know you need to be you know in therapy before during and, and after it needs to be part of the therapeutic model not not something that you're doing separately it's given me a very different perspective on life you know I, the depression's come back but i have been given a, a different perspective on life having had those experiences and and i think it would be fair to say that it makes those bouts of depression easier because if I, if I do, you know, if I have moments of meditation, moments of listening to the music that I had during that psychedelic experience, I can reconnect with, you know, something that was quite healing. Yeah, it's not as bad as it was. In November 2022, the largest trial to date of psilocybin showed that alongside psychological support, a single 25 milligram dose could improve the symptoms of treatment resistant depression for up to 12 weeks. And the study Matt was involved in found the psychedelic is at least as effective as the antidepressant escitalopram in treating major depressive disorder. Psilocybin isn't the only psychedelic being looked at. There is active research looking at LSD, MDMA and dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, the active ingredient in ayahuasca, among a whole host of others. And the indications are vast, including depression and anxiety, addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder, anorexia and pain syndromes. But how exactly do these drugs work and how can they possibly show promise for such a range of disorders? How can a drug work for depression and addiction? They're completely different disorders. And at one level, they are. The, the symptomatology is completely different. But the brain mechanisms are similar in that they're all dis all the disorders I've talked about are disorders in which people get locked into thought or behavioral processes, which they often know are stupid and, 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 and pointless and damaging, but they can't break. That was David Nutt, a neuropsychopharmacologist based at Imperial College London with expertise in exploring the impact of drugs on the brain, as well as using drugs to treat people with mental illness. And one thing psychedelic drugs do, you, and you can see that from the brain imaging, is they dramatically break down ongoing brain processes and allow you to think differently during the trip. And, and sometimes that different thinking persists for months or years after the trip. I asked him whether psychedelics work the same in everyone or whether they have different effects in different people. Physiologically, it's impossible to distinguish. Everyone has the same fragmentation. 
That's, and this is one of the interesting questions at present is if I could show you an EEG of ketamine and psilocybin and DMT, and they'd all look the same. You couldn't tell them apart, but patients can, or people can tell them apart. We don't know why that is. Uh, that's, it's maybe something else somewhere else in the brain that, that they do different things. But in terms of the subjective experiences, they're enormously different. We've recently completed a study where we gave two doses of psilocybin to depressed people, thinking it would give a longer-lasting antidepressant effect, which it sort of did. But what was absolutely staggering is that there is no relationship between the first trip and the second trip. They're just completely different. The trip content is almost unknowable uh, and unpredictable, uh, even in the same person, even with the same disorder, <laughs> even with the same intention of actually getting some sort of personal value out of it. This mirrors what Matt was saying earlier when he was recounting his own experience of psilocybin. His first dose experience was very different to his second dose. We also heard from both him and Sarah at Clerkenwell that patients go through a very thorough selection process before they are accepted onto a trial. This, I learned from David Nutt, is because these drugs can trigger significant psychotic episodes if given to the wrong person. Well, they can certainly trigger psychotic episodes and we are very cautious. We don't ever give um, any treatment to someone who's either been psychotic or who has a first degree relative who's been psychotic. Uh, because historically, we, it has been certainly claimed that they can trigger psychosis. A lot of people think, well, these drugs are going to lift someone's depression because yeah, you're having fun, you know, you're seeing coloured lights, you're floating through space, you know, you being a, being a psychonaut or whatever. But in fact, for the, our patients, it's actually really very challenging. They, they go to the darkest places in their life, often places that they've actually suppressed, repressed uh, for for decades, and they have to deal with often the, you know the most severe traumas that's led to them being depressed. I mean, we're now realizing that a lot of the distress in a whole range of mental disorders is caused by the brain trying not to not to deal with problems, <laughs> trying not to access things it doesn't want to access. Uh, because it can't cope with them, don't know how to cope with them. And that is very, very tiring and very, you know, it consumes a lot of energy, a lot of motivation. He then compared this to how antidepressants such as SSRIs work. What antidepressants do is they protect the emotional centre of the brain from stress and allow it to heal. So it's a bit like you use a plaster of Paris on a broken limb. The plaster of Paris doesn't heal the limb, but it protects the bone from more damage and the bone heals. SSRIs protect the limbic system from stress and the, um, the brain heals. Psychedelics work completely differently. They work in a different part of the brain. They work in the cortex. They work on a different receptor. They work on the 2A receptor. The SSRIs work through the 1A receptor. And when we image, and this is the most exciting, probably the most exciting thing we've ever done, really. If you image the brain of depressed people three weeks after they've had their second trip, you can see their brains work differently. They're more connected, they're more flexible. And the less modular, the more flexible the brain is, the better the outcome. And that's amazing. No one's ever been able to image a brain before and say, this is the measure that leads to the improvement in mood. And on top of all that, what is staggering is that's what the patients say. The patients say, you know, it's funny, I can think differently now. It's like my my brain was like a computer, like it was running the wrong programs. I've defragged it or I've reformatted it. It's like clearing out the garbage on my computer and, and I can think properly now. 
As exciting as David Nutt makes this sound, some experts feel we still need to find out more about whether these drugs actually work, let alone how they work. David Taylor, Director of Pharmacy and Pathology at the Maudsley Hospital and Professor of Psychopharmacology at King's College London, still has a lot of unanswered questions about these therapies. What we need to know is if we give psilocybin under these conditions, does this improve refractory depression? Does it improve PTSD, any other condition? And is that improvement sustained? But I think it's premature to start suggesting that this is a particular way that psilocybin works because we're not absolutely sure at the moment that it does work. I think it's worth comparing the development of a synthetic drug to the development of, of psilocybin. If for a manufacturer were to generate a synthetic chemical, it would go through a huge range of tests to establish its safety, its lack of carcinogenicity, and so on and so forth. It would also undergo a huge range of tests to establish its uh, efficacy, uh, both in absolute and relative terms. It would go undergo tests to establish the optimal dose. To different extents, um, those aspects of development are missing for psychedelics. So we know very, very little about what could go wrong. However, he agrees that we are in desperate need of alternatives for nearly all of the conditions that psychedelics are being trialled for. For many of these conditions, there are very few options which are uniformly effective and which continue to be effective over the medium to long term. This, of course, is why the decision has been taken in Australia to allow psychiatrists to start prescribing psychedelics later this year. But for David Taylor, this still isn't a reason to rush these drugs through. They seem to be holding effectively illicit drugs to a lower standard than non-illicit drugs. The authorities, will, I suspect, would not allow a drug, for example, for hypertension or high blood cholesterol to be used with so little research backing its use, and in particular so little research backing the safety of its use. There may be an assumption on the part of the regulator authorities that these compounds are safe, but I, I don't know where that assumption might come from. I'm not aware of any data that conclusively shows that these substances are safe to use, even as a single treatment. We don't know the long-term effects, and I'm not suggesting there are important long-term adverse effects, but there might be. So, all these things considered, how far are we from these drugs being routinely prescribed in the UK? David Nutt isn't too optimistic that it will be any time soon. We need clinics that have the competences to do this. It's likely they'll be prescribed as a single episode of psychotherapy plus psychedelic. You'll have to have a special place to do it, which could be an inpatient bed or it could be a special clinic like ours, by people that know what they're doing. And um, we're going to learn a lot from Australia because you know, by the end of this year, they will probably have put at least 100 people through this therapy. So I think it, I think it could revolutionise psychiatry and encourage people going into psychiatry. The, the problem will be whether it gets funded. But, you know, again, you know, we've seen with ketamine, we've seen with S-ketamine, we've seen the, the anti-psychiatry lobbies, the anti-drug anti lobbies 
that have tried, you know, that have actually succeeded in blocking ketamine through NICE, they might decide they want to block all drugs in psychiatry. So they might try to block psychedelics as well. So, so I'm not very optimistic about this country. Actually. I think we've um, we've got the whole series of uh, of actors which are actually rather hostile to innovation and to thought. And David Taylor agrees that perhaps we should temper our excitement for now, at least until we know more about the safety and toxicity of these compounds. Yeah, I don't think I'm saying that these treatments shouldn't be used or don't offer any hope. I think what I'm trying to say is that we should be a bit more guarded about our excitement and expectation and perhaps be more realistic about what we don't know about the use of these substances. Um, I suppose that a cynic might say that applies to regular medicines too, and, and that, that will be true too. It's rare that we investigate, for example, the effects of antidepressants for any longer than a year. But I think there is a key difference here. Um, uh, and amongst all the things I've mentioned, probably the most important is that, that, that we haven't had a systematic program to establish the safety and toxicity of these compounds. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing the emergence of more trial data for these drugs, particularly from the phase three trials, and hope that the findings continue to be positive. For people like Matt, who feel like they've tried everything, this evolving field is an important beacon of hope. It's it's in its infancy, really, in, in terms of the bigger picture. But, you know, there are some really encouraging signs and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the experience you know, that, that I had, like I said, it's, it's, yeah, definitely don't look at trees the same way again. You've been listening to an episode of the PJ pod. Thank you to Sarah Baitup and Clerkenwell Health for having us to visit, to David Nutt and David Taylor for their expert input. And of course, to Matt for agreeing to share his story with us. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, hit follow or subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. Until next time. Goodbye.